2007, November 13th. Today is Lecture 36, Worlds in Comparison, the Terrestrial Planets. And we'll get going on today's lecture. Lecture number 36 is Worlds in Comparison. We've talked about the terrestrial planets. Talked about, spent a fair amount of time the previous week before the last quiz talking about the Earth and the Moon. And last week, after an introduction to the solar system and solar system origins, we talked about the other terrestrial planets, Mercury, Venus, and Mars. And now it's time to take a lot of the themes, some of which got a little compressed at the end of the lectures, and put them all together and see what we can learn about the terrestrial planets by comparing them and contrasting their properties. So today's key ideas are as follows. Surfaces and interiors, what we see as far as surface features and as far as interior properties of planets depends upon the size of those planets, as it turns out. Small bodies will turn out to be old and cold, old surfaces and cold, solid interiors. The larger bodies are going to be young and hot. They're going to have young surfaces and relatively hot interiors, and we'll say a bit about how that comes about. The other big difference in contrast and compare among them is going to be the atmospheres that we find or don't find among the terrestrial planets. It looks like that the initial conditions of the solar system are that the, all of the terrestrial world should have started out with fairly substantial atmospheres. But which, how those atmospheres end up in the present day depends upon how the evolution goes on those planets. In particular, the evolution of atmospheres is driven primarily by the greenhouse effect. And we're going to see how on three different worlds where the greenhouse effect is operated, there have been three very different outcomes. And in particular, another issue that comes out of this is not only one's ability to have one's atmosphere evolve, but to retain the atmosphere, the so-called question of atmospheric retention. We'll say a little bit about that towards the, towards the middle portion of the lecture. This turns out to be an interesting question for what we will expect as we move outwards for the solar system and find other planets, not so much planets now really, but the, the large giant moons around other planets, what we should be expecting for their atmosphere. So we want to say something about that here because it has a lot of bearing on what happens in the terrestrial worlds. And finally, I want to end by introducing something called the habitable zone. This is the region where water can be liquid, and this is actually an, an area of tremendous interest right now, especially as we begin to study other solar systems, because the real holy grail of extrasolar planetary studies is finding planets in the habitable zones for those stars. But in order to understand that, we have to define it, and what better place than to define the habitable zone in the context of the terrestrial planets. So today is worlds in comparison, what we know about the terrestrial planets. So let's do a quick, quick inventory of the terrestrial planets. I put up the five major terrestrial bodies. Four of them are planets. One of them, of course, is the giant moon, our own moon, the moon. The terrestrial planets can be divided very easily into two different groups by their sheer size. What I'll call the, rather unimaginatively, the large bodies, which are the Earth and Venus. They're nearly the same size. and The, the, the unit we are using for measuring the radii of things is the radius of the Earth and they are approximately the same mass. Venus is a bit smaller. It's about 95% the radius of the Earth and 82% the mass of the Earth. Now, many of you have asked a question. Let's make a quick aside here. Um, I've been kind of concerned when I throw around numbers like 0.055 me and things like that. Do I have to memorize those for the test? Oh, absolutely not. I have to look these up every time myself. I'm not interested in your ability to memorize numbers. What I'm really interested in is concepts. So just let me assure you when I throw these numbers up, they're to try to set a quantitative scale in your mind, but I'm not going to hold you to them in terms of, and I want you to know the relative bits, but the absolute numbers, you know, I'm not concerned with you knowing those. Right? Those are facts. I'm really interested in ideas. All right, where was I? Oh, yeah. 
So the large bodies really stand out in terms of their size. And Venus and the Earth are about the same size. And as these two pictures show here, of course, they both have fairly substantial atmospheres. The small bodies are Mars and Mercury, two bona fide planets, and our own moon. They range in size from about half the radius of the Earth down to a little over a quarter radius of the Earth from Mars through the moon, respectively. And they range in mass from a tenth of the mass of the Earth for Mars down to only a little over one and a quarter percent of the mass of the Earth for the moon. And we can see also, looking at these three smaller bodies, there's a big contrast here. Relatively young surfaces, heavy atmospheres in the large bodies. Only Mars has any kind of appreciable atmosphere, as shown in this beautiful Hubble picture. But even it, too, is a dry desert world with lots of impact craters. And finally, Mercury and the Moon are completely free of atmospheres, or at least of any kind of atmosphere we're talking about. And they're very heavily cratered, very ancient surfaces. So why is it there's such a stark difference as I go from objects the size of the Moon and Mercury, and even Mars, to the very different worlds of Venus and Earth? which, of course, many reasons, are, how did they get that way? How did they end up in these very different forms? So we have to speak about the evolution of planets. And remember that I use the word evolution in, in the original sense of an unfolding. You start with a set of physical conditions, and you allow those physical conditions to unfold in time. And that's what I mean by evolution. There's two types of evolution that we're going to be talking about in this particular lecture today. The evolution of surfaces, which for lack of a better word I'll call geologic evolution. How does the surface change? How is it formed and repaved or not over time? And then atmosphere evolution. How do I go from initial conditions and composition to present day conditions and composition? How does that system unfold in time as the various processes that work on surfaces and atmospheres play out? So let's start with the planetary surfaces because of the most obvious thing that you can see on a planet. The surface evolution of the terrestrial planets, and indeed this is going to be true in various restricted ways for almost every other solid surface we see in the solar system, can be seen to be driven by three basic physical processes. Okay? Impact cratering, which basically is in there, we're sculpting the surface, plowing it up by hitting it with gigantic rocks from space. Volcanism, in which I bring molten material from the hot molten material from the interior, and I flow it out onto the surface and use it to repave that surface and build brand new rock. Volcanism can either be as a result of simply natural processes, or it can be volcanism following an impact cratering event. For example, on the ancient moon, the maria were built by flooding of lava plains after a hole got punched in the crust by a giant asteroidal impact. And finally, there's a third mechanism that can come into play, especially on the larger bodies, and this is tectonism. Tectonism is surface formation, surface repaving due to crustal movement on the surface. Whether I have vertical or lateral movement of the crustal material, that's what sets the, the, the evolution of the surfaces. Of, of these processes, one of them, impact cratering, is purely external, purely random. It basically is whether you get lucky or not with regards to what's going to hit you. But the last two processes, volcanism and tectonism, are driven by internal processes inside the planet. They have to do with whether they're operating. Depends on the details of what the internal structure of the planet looks like. And really, it comes down to answering one question as to whether these processes are occurring. Is, is the interior hot enough for volcanism? And is the interior plastic enough for tectonism? But really, for volcanism, which is the major reprocessing problem, is the interior hot enough for this to occur? After all, if the interior has gotten so cold that it is solidified, 
You've shut off volcanism completely. It doesn't matter how many times you smack the surface with an asteroid, there's no crust and no lower molten layers to bust through to. If the interior is not molten, the planet ceases to become internally dynamic. So the big question we'll ask is, is there a difference between these planets because some are cold and some are still hot in the interior? Well, let's look at these small planet surfaces. I, I sort of half answered my question right there. If we look at these surfaces, and these are now shown where I'm now not showing them to scale, but I've simply shown them the same, scaled up to the same size, so you can see the details. We have Mercury on the top, the Moon, and Mars. What we see are very heavily cratered surfaces, many cases of which the oldest surfaces we see are older than about 3 billion years old. When we go up to places like the Moon, even the Maria, which are relatively young, are still of order about 3 billion years old or so. The other feature we see is that these things have essentially continuous single-piece crust. They're all of one piece all the way around. There's no separate plates on them. There's nothing going on here. There's a little bit of wrinkling and buckling, but that's about it. There is some tectonism going on, but it's actually a different kind of tectonism than we encounter on these other planets. It's vertical tectonism. What we're seeing is vertical faulting. And this vertical faulting is largely fracturing. In the case of the Mercury and the Moon, what we see is the planets actually shrinking as they cool. On the case of Mars, we see the vertical tectonism because we see at least some time in the distant past, last 300 to 500 million years, signs of large shield volcanoes, which are signs of deep upwelling on the surfaces of these, on the interior of these planets. We talk about crustal shaping. We talk about what is it the sculpts and forms, the shape and terrain features we see on the crust of a solid world. There are two basic processes that occur on these smaller bodies. The first of these is what we call formation of the primary crust, the very first, first crust this planet would have shortly after the molten crust solidified. The primary shaping pro process on the primary crust is impact cratering because in the early phases of the solar system, that's pretty much what was going on. All of geology everywhere was being dominated by impact cratering because there were a whole lot of rocks left over from the formation of the solar system that had to get cleared out. But after that impact, bomb heavy bombardment epoch began to fall off, then there's a secondary crust formation process begins to kick into play, and that is primarily the role of volcanism, in which we have floods of material from the interiors, which are still molten, flooding out onto the surface and repaving those surfaces. So we talk about the heavily cratered ancient highlands, for example, on Mercury and, and the Moon, there we're really looking at the primary crust of the Moon and Mercury, the original crust going almost all the way back to when they first solidified. When we look at places like the Maria or the lava floodplains on Mercury or the vast hotspot volcano regions and, and, hot, and plains on Mars, there we're now talking about secondary crusts. We're talking about crusts that have been formed later, in the case of Mars, often very much later by this process of molten material being brought up from the interior and flooding out over the surface and forming a secondary crust by volcanism. So a key point here of going on is that the small planets have largely cooled and solidified on the middle today. Whoops. Let's go back to where we were. Largely solidified in the middle today. They have ancient primary crusts, which are shaped primarily by impacts. And then there are regions of secondary crust which were shaped by subsequent volcanism on the surfaces of these planets. 
Now, the large planetary surfaces here, I got a little gratuitous animation there so we can see these surfaces in some detail. Venus, of course, properly rotating retrograde. These are very young surfaces. When we look in detail at the surfaces of the Earth and Venus, we find that they are very, very young terrains. We don't find, except in very, very isolated regions, do we find ancient terrains. For example, on the Earth, the average age of the crust of the Earth is around less than 200 million years. Now, it's true that deep in places like the Australian Continental Shield, Greenland, and the Canadian Continental Shields, that's where we find the most ancient crust, the rocks that are getting upwards of around 4 billion years old. But most of the crust of the Earth is fairly young. So, too, on Venus, we find very, very few impact craters. We find a lot of fairly smooth terrains. And the indication from the impact cratering rate on Venus is that most of the surface of Venus was repaved about a half a billion years ago. Again, what we're seeing on the Earth and Venus is the, is the introduction of a third important process forming what's called a tertiary crust. And it's an active tertiary crust in which the crusts are being reformed, perhaps even to this day. There's lots of evidence of volcanism, for example, on, on Venus. And it's evidence of clear upwelling and downwelling as well, the pancake domes and the coronae. On the Earth, this tert active tertiary crust, the major process is plate tectonics. We're seeing lateral recycling of the plates as they grind past and forth, the, forth against each other, floating on top of the semi-molten mantle underneath the, underneath the crust of the Earth. In places where the crust, crustal plates are colliding head-on, one of them can actually get pushed underneath the other and gets shoved into the hot mantle and actually begins to melt. In other places, we see the crustal plates pulling apart. Warm mantle material is welling up into the crack and filling in the materials, building brand new crust. So we see ancient crust being recycled downwards, new crust welling upwards, but it's the side-to-side -side lateral motions that's causing all of the geologic evolution of the surface of the Earth today. All of the major geologic features of the Earth's surface are primarily showing you the effects of a few billion years of lateral tectonism, of this plate tectonics. On Venus, we only have a one-plate crust, but it's riding on top of a still molten interior. Here, because it's a one-plate crust, lateral sliding doesn't do much for us because there's no places for collisions. And what the primary form of tertiary crust building here is going to be upwelling and downwelling, or vertical tectonism. So we see the vertical upwelling that gives us the pancake domes. Places where there's downwelling in the molten mantle gives us the depressions in the ground, the so-called coronae. And so what we see is a lot of vertical motion here, but not a breaking into plates. We don't find chains of volcanoes. We don't find rift valleys and things like that. We just find a lot of big high places and a lot of low places. Whereas on the Earth, we have extremely rich geology as a result of the lateral reprocessing due to te plate tectonics. So what's going on? Why is there this big difference between the Earth and Venus, and Mars, Mercury, and the, and the Moon? Well, it turns out that primarily what's going on is the degree to which these planets have cooled off and solidified in their interiors. If we look at the early stages of formation of a planet, all planets start out mostly molten. The heat of formation is so, so strong that it basically melts all the materials that eventually incorporate these more or less solid planets. The very first physical process that occurs is differentiation. And this introduces the first real big initial input of heat into these planets, which we call heat of formation. The energy comes from all those meteorites and rocks and planetesimals that they're collecting up over time and the gravity from their impacts. 
In this situation, the planets all start out as very, very dense molten balls. The hot molten metals sink down to the centers and form the iron and nickel cores. The lighter silicate material floats to the surface and forms the mantles and eventually solidifies into the silicate crust. The second stage occurs in volcanism in all of these planets where the mantle is still molten primarily from internal heating, from the leftover heat of formation, but also from radioactive decay of material trapped inside there. The heat gets trapped from like all the uranium and thorium decays and that keeps the Earth and other planets fairly hot. These magmas rise up towards the surface below the crust and either we have cracks in the crust because of rifts or, or plate tectonics or you can actually have an upwelling strong enough to actually buckle the crust upwards and break free and you get a volcano. The other way in which you can get into the secondary stage of volcanism is from the outside. You punch through the crust from the outside with a giant asteroid impact. Magma wells up and paves out over the surface. So we certainly see the evidence of these two stages in all of the planets, the terrestrial planets of the inner solar system. They're all differentiated. They all went through this phase where they were completely molten, where the metal sank to the center, and the silicates floated to the top. So we see very strongly differentiated bodies. We also see signs of volcanism on every single one of these worlds. All of them show some degree of lava planes, whether you're having it by impact punch through on places like the Moon or Mercury, or on natural tectonic upwelling like on the Venus, Mars, and on the Earth. Eventually, this second part here, the stage of volcanism, requires the mantle to still be molten. And the question is, how long does it take for that planet to cool off to where it's solid all the way through? Or how long will it take, for example, for the Earth to cool off and go from molten to semi-molten to solid? This goes back a little bit to something we talked about. We talked about the age of the Earth, and we talked about the Comte de Buffon basically trying to estimate the age of the Earth by asking how long would it take a molten iron Earth to cool off to its current temperature. Well, the physics behind that is basically the basic physics of heating and cooling. What you start with to figure out the cooling time is you say, how much energy have I got? What's my total internal energy? That total energy is going to be a constant times the size of the planet cube times the temperature. Basically, it's the volume of the planet, how big it is, how much volume it's got, multiplied by the temperature. Remember, temperature is a measure of internal energy. So to a first approximation, and this is only an approximation, the total internal energy of a body will be equal to its volume, which is proportional to its radius cubed, times some measure of its internal temperature. So that's the source of heat. Now, where does the heat go? What's the, what are the losses I can get of cooling? Well, the only channel available to me to lose energy is by a radiation. Remember, Kirchhoff's laws told us that the first law is a hot body radiates a continuous black body spectrum. So if you've got a hot planet in cold space, its surface is going to radiate like a black body. What is that energy loss rate? Well, it's simply the surface area of the planet, 4 pi r squared, for spherical planets, of course, multiplied by the amount of energy radiated per unit area on the surface of a hot body. That's the Stefan-Boltzmann law. And that means that the amount of energy per square centimeter is this constant sigma times the temperature of that body to the fourth power. So this gives me the total amount of energy being lost every second from the center. And the top line, the total energy, tells me the total energy I start with. So if I've got energy and I've got a loss rate, I can compute how long it will take me to 
get rid of all that energy at this rate. And that time is called the cooling time. It's simply the total energy divided by how fast I'm losing it. Simple analogy, right? Let's say I didn't want to know the cooling time. Let's say I wanted to know the my car is going to run out of gas time. What am I going to do? Well, I take how many gallons of gas does my tank have? How fast am I driving in my mileage? How many gallons per hour am I burning up? What's my range of driving? Well, let's say I've got a 15-gallon tank, and my car's not terribly well tuned up, and I burn a gallon of gas for every 10 minutes. How long will I, can I drive? Well, I got 15 gallons divided by a gallon per minute, 15 minutes, uh, a gallon per 10 minutes, so in, 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 150 minutes. So I can go just a little under three hours before I run out of gas. Okay, how much you got divided by how fast you're losing it? All right. Well, here the total energy is this constant times r cubed times t. The total energy loss is 4 pi r squared sigma t to the fourth. So I simply substitute those in. The cooling time is my total energy content divided by my total area. Let's just, let's just collapse all those constants together. And what I got is the cooling time is proportional to the size of the body divided by its temperature to the third power. So what this gives us is a little insight into how fast things cool off. It says hot bodies cool faster. Basically, the cooling time is really short because it depends on 1 over temperature cubed. Turns out, not surprisingly, things cool faster as they come out of the oven, but then there's a long time as they cool off. It takes longer and longer for them to go to the next step. Similarly, larger bodies, things that are bigger in size, not mass, but size, cool more slowly because the cooling time is proportional to the size. I double the diameter, double the radius of a planet for the same temperature. It will take twice as long to cool off. This also is, cons is considerably consonant with our everyday experience. Take a baby, take a football player, put him out in the cold without any, any uh, clothing on. Not a very pretty sight, but what the heck. Who's going to get colder faster? Well, it ain't going to be the football player. It's going to be the baby. Why? Because they have both the same internal heat, right? Everyone has the same internal body temperature. But the smaller one has got a, a larger fraction of volume to surface area, and therefore bam, a smaller fraction of volume to surface area, and bam, the baby cools off really quick. If you've ever spent any time with babies, you know you've got to keep them wrapped up all the time because they just get cold immediately. Whereas, walk around campus. On days when I'm wearing a down jacket and hat and gloves, there's always some really big guy walking around in shorts. Well, his cooling time is way longer than my cooling time. So it's exactly what happens in planets. A big planet has a really long cooling time. A small planet, it's radiating like crazy, and it doesn't have very much energy because it's got a small volume to carry that energy in, and it cools off real fast. So what do we get? Well, terrestrial planet interiors, the small bodies are going to be there, the baby planets, and they cool off really fast. So fast that by this time, four and a half billion years after formation, their mantles have essentially completely solidified. So now we don't have a crust riding on top of molten material. We have a crust sitting on top of solid stuff. And tectonism basically just shuts off. Because tectonics is driven primarily by the motions of the molten or semi-molten mantle. So when your mantle solidifies, that's it. End of geologic, for, uh, geologic uh, activity. Volcanism shuts down. Tectonism shuts down. You're all done. You're old, cold, and dead as planets go. You end up with very, very thick, very, very rigid crusts.
So if I took Mercury, the Moon, and Mars and sliced them open, I would find a core in Mercury. We know Mercury's got a really big core for its planet. Mars has got a core too. They have very, very weak magnetic fields. The Moon has no magnetic field at all. We think the Moon's got a core, but we're not sure. Future problems, but deep in their interiors, they're essentially solid all the way down until we get into the cores. Certainly on Mercury, there is a remnant molten core. We know from some of the wobble measurements that have been made recently of Mercury and its weak magnetic field. Mars also probably has a fairly weak molten core as well. It has a weak magnetic field, but a very, very weak magnetic field. So these guys are probably still just hot enough to be molten in their interiors, but their mantles and crusts have solidified. These are geologically dead planets by definition now. Tectonism, volcanism is shut down. Very different, however, when we go to the large bodies, Earth and Venus. These are the big guys. They got a lot of internal heat, and they got a big ratio of volume to surface area. So they're going to have really, really long cooling times. So long that basically they should still be molten today. Furthermore, those big volume, they have a lot of radioactive elements in them, primarily uranium and thorium. The heat from that radioactive decay keeps the interiors warmer than if I had just started them out hot and just let them go with no other sources of heat. So when you add the big bulk and big volume with the long cooling times, plus an additional source of internal radioactive heat, these guys are still molten in their interiors. The Earth has a solid inner core of iron, an outer liquid core. That's why it's got a very strong magnetic field. Venus, not so strong. It's got actually a fairly large iron core, but it's mostly solid at this point. But they've got molten mantles, or semi-molten mantles. As a consequence, these semi-molten mantles have convection currents rolling inside of them because they're hot on the bottom and cool on the top, and so they boil away. And it's those convection currents that drive the tectonism on these planets. In the case of the Earth, it's the plate drag that causes the plates, the 16 tectonic plates, to go sliding around each other, or to, through, around giving continental drift and all, the, all of the effects we get with plate tectonics of earthquakes and volcano chains and all that good stuff. In the case of Venus, it's a single piece crust. The lateral motions don't ha ha help much, but the vertical upwelling and then the downwelling of the mo mo motions in the mantle give rise to the vertical tectonism that we see shaping its surface even to this day. So. Small bodies cool fast, their mantles solidify, they're old and cold. Their surfaces have, have been, haven't had volcanism, even if it is punched through the surface volcanism in, in many hundreds of millions or even billions of years, they're old and cold. The Earth and Venus, hot interiors, molten interiors. Craters hit them, doesn't matter, they're continually repaving their surfaces through tectonic activity. Sometime in the distant future, however, eventually the Earth and Venus will cool off and solidify and they will be big and cold and dead rather than small and old and cold. So planetary interiors, the whole question of planetary interiors, with back just one bit, whole question of planetary interior surfaces is whether or not you have tectonism depends on whether your interior has solidified or not. If your interior solidifies, you're old and cold. What about atmospheres? What about the other part of the terrestrial planets that make them stand out? They're atmospheres. Planetary atmospheres during formation, the planets were continually being bombarded by impacts from planetesimals. This made the surfaces really hot. So any volatiles, any water, carbon dioxide, ices, are going to melt, flash into vapor, and woof, go right off the planet. So the early primordial planets cannot hold on to their volatiles very well. If you want, furthermore, they're kind of forming in the wrong place for volatiles anyway. 
because they're in the hot inner portions of the solar system where you don't get many volatiles. All the volatiles are out way past the frost line. They're out in the asteroid belt and beyond. So the only way you're going to get at volatiles back on these planets is going to be delivered later by impacts from stuff coming in from the outer solar system. So after the initial molten phases are done with and the surfaces begin to cool off a bit so that you can actually have something go on, there are a series of processes that occur that allow for primordial atmosphere formation, the very first blankets of gas they build around themselves. The primary probable source are comet and probably frozen asteroid impacts from the outer solar system. Comets and, and frozen asteroids are very, very rich in volatiles. When they impact on the Earth or the primordial terrestrial planets, they deliver those loads of volatiles to the surface now. So that's probably the primary source of where most of the volatiles we see, the water, the carbon dioxide, etc., that we see on the Earth and the inner planets come from. The other place where we can get some gases is from the interior. Gases like water vapor, carbon dioxide, nitrogen, and so forth are easily dissolved in liquid rock. If the liquid rock is deep in the interior, the gases can't make it to the surface to escape, and so you get a reservoir of those. As volcanism occurs, you bring this ga these, this, this dissolved gases in the rock to the surface, suddenly expose it to practical vacuum, and it says, just like opening up a can of soda pop, where you've got a lot of carbon dioxide dissolved in the water under pressure, you get carbon dioxide and water vapor and stuff dissolved under pressure in volcanic magmas. It reaches the surface and poof, you pop the top off and the gases just blow out. Go look at pictures, for example, of volcanoes erupting on the Earth. And you say, wow, gosh, there's a lot of smoke and sulfur. Actually, you know, most of what you're seeing in there is water vapor. It's dissolved water vapor and dissolved carbon dioxide are just pouring out of magmas on the Earth. That's most of what's belched out by a volcano, literally belching out water vapor. So these two processes together will actually begin to build atmospheres on top of the planets. Delivery of volatiles from the outside plus outgassing from the interiors. If you look at the composition of the atmospheres at these times, they should be made of the primary volatiles of the inner portions or frozen portions of the solar system, namely carbon dioxide, water, and nitrogen in molecular nitrogen form, N2. Hydrogen and helium, if there is any hydrogen and helium on these planets to start with, is going to be very quickly lost because these planets are too small, too low gravity to hold on to their gases. So every one of the terrestrial planets, Mercury, surprising, Venus, Earth, and Mars, all probably started out with the very same composition of atmospheres. They started out with heavy carbon dioxide, nitrogen, and water vapor atmospheres. So that's the starting point, right? What was good for Mercury was good for, everybody, for, for Venus, for Earth, and Mars. So what happened? Why is it that if they started out the same, why are they so dramatically different today? Well, the evolution of atmospheres is driven by three basic physical processes. The first of these is the greenhouse effect. The greenhouse effect is basically plays a role in determining the balance between solar heating and atmospheric cooling. Okay, and it works because the greenhouse molecules in the atmosphere trap some of the radiation that would normally go into cooling the Earth, and so the atmospheres act like a blanket. <coughs> They're a visible, transparent, but infrared opaque blanket. For example, this is what makes the Earth warm enough for there to be liquid water on it. 
the greenhouse effect actually makes the Earth about 35 degrees Celsius warmer than it would be if it had no atmosphere, changing it from a world where water would be frozen to where water is primarily liquid. The second piece of physics that comes into play is the planet's gravity. This determines what that planet's ability will be to hang on to what gases it has. If the planet's got a very heavy gravity, it will have a very high escape speed and will be able to retain the gases. If not, it will lose those gases. Finally, the third piece of physics is actually not so much physics as chemistry. It's the chemistry of CO2 and water. CO2 is very easily dissolved in liquid water. Right? Open up a can of soda pop anytime if you want a proof of that directly in your face if you shake up the can. What the chemistry of CO2 and water does is it helps determine the total atmospheric CO2 content and therefore its contribution back into the greenhouse effect. If there's a lot of liquid water around, I can dissolve carbon dioxide, removing gaseous carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and therefore removing it from the reservoir of greenhouse gases that might make the planet too hot, for example. Or there might be processes where liquid water is frozen out and the carbon dioxide stays in the atmosphere. Or it's too hot for liquid water and the carbon dioxide stays in the atmosphere. So as I said before, the greenhouse effect is important. It determines what the terrestrial planet's surface temperatures are like. Without an atmosphere, the Earth is fairly cold, 255 Kelvin. Remember that water freezes at 273 Kelvin. Venus has an equilibrium temperature of 280 degree Kelvin, higher so it would be liquid water as possible there. Mars has a surface equilibrium temperature of 214 Kelvin without an atmosphere. With atmospheres and greenhouse effect, the Earth's temperature goes up to an average of about 285 to 300 Kelvin. On Venus, basically it's as much as 750 Kelvin because the greenhouse effect has run away. And on Mars, it's only a very slight temperature differential. In fact, there's some people who argue there's no greenhouse effect going on on Mars at all. It's still controversial. However, these temperatures determine the state of water. On the Earth, water can be liquid. On Venus, it's too hot for liquid water, and water must be a vapor, or gas, if you will. And on Mars, it's too cold for liquid water, and the stable form of water is ice. So very different water chemistry occurring on these three different worlds because of the effect of the greenhouse effect. But the greenhouse process is not a perfectly stable process. Let's start with the Earth. Now let's say I could find the knob on the brightness knob on the sun and turn up the brightness of the sun. What would happen? Well, if I increase the amount of solar radiation, the surface temperature is going to go up. That one's easy. You kind of worked a homework problem on that. As the surface temperature increases on the Earth, the higher air temperature causes increased water evaporation. Right On warm days, it's more humid than on really super cold days. So increased air temperature leads to increased evaporation. Furthermore, warm air holds more water vapor than cold air. Right? It's hot and muggy in the summertime. It's cold and dry in the wintertime, if you want an everyday example of that. So now we have the air not only having more water vapor, which is a greenhouse gas, warm air can hold more of it. The more water vapor means there's more water in the atmosphere. There's greater greenhouse absorption. Greater greenhouse absorption means the surface temperature begins to rise. As the surface temperature begins to rise, there's increased evaporation, and I get a positive feedback loop. Greater heating of the surface produces greater amount of water vapor. Greater water vapor leads to greater opacity, which leads to greater temperature, which leads to greater evaporation, which leads to, and you start turning the loop. 
So if I get pushed into a regime where water wants to be mostly vapor instead of liquid, I will trigger a positive feedback loop where the temperature of the Earth will simply continue to increase and increase and run away. What will happen is eventually the oceans will evaporate, the carbonaceous rocks where most of our CO2 will begin to decompose and release CO2 into the atmosphere in massive quantities, causing a runaway greenhouse effect. And the Earth would suddenly look like Venus. Now this process is fairly slow. It would take many tens of millions of years for this process to go into a total runaway. In fact, it could take as much as a billion years to go all the way to Venus-like conditions. But it's a positive feedback loop which hides inside of the greenhouse effect. It is a blessing and a potential curse. The other piece of the puzzle is atmospheric retention. All planets have an escape speed from their surface. You may remember this formula from a long time ago. It's the speed, minimum speed you have to have for it to escape a body of mass m from its radius r. The other piece is that every atom in a hot gas has a speed. That speed is called its thermal speed, which was related by this formula, which is the temperature divided by the mass of the molecule. In words, what happens here, what's important about this formula, is that at a given temperature, big molecules move more slowly. So if you're just on the line where the average thermal speeds are about equal to your escape speed in temperature-wise, the small molecules are going to be the fast ones. They're going to go above the escape speed. The big fat molecules are the slow ones. They're going to stay below the escape speed. So which molecules you lose from an atmosphere depends upon your size and your temperature. The takeaway point from this is the following. Massive planets can hold on to gases better than low-mass planets at the same surface temperature. Similarly, colder planets have a better job of holding on to their gases than hotter planets with the same mass, with the same surface gravity. So if I had two planets with exactly identical surface gravities, exactly identical escape speeds, the hotter planet's going to lose its atmosphere faster than the colder planet. Similarly, if I had two planets with exactly the same surface temperature, but one was much more massive than the other, the massive planet's going to hang on to its gases, and the low-mass planet's going to lose them. So it's a nuanced problem. It isn't any one thing. It's the combination of factors. Your mass and size, which sets your escape speed, and your temperature, which sets basically how fast your molecules are moving. Here's an illustration to show that. What I've shown is the escape speed of all these various planets and then the critical speeds, the critical temperature speeds for each of the various molecular species from hydrogen down through CO2, nitrogen, water, methane, helium, molecular hydrogen. And then approximate measures of the temperatures in the atmospheres. Now you'll say, now wait a minute, the Earth doesn't have a temperature of 1,000 degrees. It does at the top of the atmosphere, which is relevant for where the escape occurs. The escape doesn't occur from the surface. It occurs at the top of the thermosphere. We see in planets like Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune are gigantic gravity, even though they're cold out there. And they can, that combination of gigantic size and cold means that if you're above these lines, you can hold on to everything. So the way to think about it is the points for the planets are on top of the lines. They're holding the gas in, whereas if the planet lies below the line, they will lose those gases. So for the Earth, Venus, Mars, and the terrestrial worlds, They'll lose hydrogen and helium, but they can hold on to water vapor, nitrogen, and carbon dioxide. Mercury's gravity is so low and it's so close to the sun that it will actually lose water vapor and carbon dioxide, but 
and nitrogen, but barely it'd be able to hold on to carbon dioxide, whereas the moon loses everything. These planets in the outer solar system, we'll see those later. So what happens? Mercury's atmosphere is too hot for liquid water. It shuts down carbon dioxide and water chemistry completely. The greenhouse effect, because of the proximity to the sun, runs away, loses its water, loses its carbon dioxide. It's a small planet with weak surface gravity. It simply can't hold on to that hot, heavy atmosphere anymore, and the atmosphere literally evaporates off the planet. And so what do we get? We get that today Mercury doesn't have an atmosphere at all. It basically got so hot it blew its atmosphere off. So the atmosphere just simply went into a thermal runaway and bye-bye. And Mercury looks like the picture behind, a cold, dead world with no atmosphere. Venus was too hot for liquid water, so you never got the water chemistry. There may have been early oceans, but they vanished. You get a runaway greenhouse effect. Venus today is 750 degrees Kelvin. This is, however, Venus is big and its gravity can hold on to its atmosphere. It can hold on to the carbon dioxide and nitrogen. The water gets destroyed by UV photolysis, and what you end up with is what we saw before. Venus has a hot, heavy, dry CO2 atmosphere. Earth, warm enough for liquid water. Water condenses out, water chemistry goes on, soaks up the carbon dioxide. You get a warm greenhouse effect, makes everything nice. And what we get is a moist, mild, warm nitrogen-oxygen atmosphere as life thrives in water and produces oxygen from carbon dioxide. And finally, on Mars, it's warm enough for liquid water during the first giga year. You get some water chemistry going on, but that water chemistry taking the carbon dioxide off begins to make the place cold because you begin to lose your greenhouse effect. As the water freezes out, you shut down the chemistry. The magnetic field shuts down when the interior solidifies and the solar wind, in combination with the low gravity, you start losing the atmosphere. And what you get is Mars is dry, cold, thin, carbon dioxide atmosphere. So we all start out the same, but where our atmospheres ended up depended upon a combination of where we were in the solar system, whether it was too hot to be liquid water like Venus, too cold to be liquid water like Mars, or the classic Goldilocks problem. The Earth was in the place where it was just right, and everything worked out that the Earth was big enough to hold on to its warm atmosphere. Venus could hold on to its warm atmosphere. Mercury was too small and lost it. And Mars, double whammy. The atmosphere froze, and then it went away. See you all tomorrow.